For some of us, the violin concerto is the ultimate expression of a composer's oral invention and a solo performer's courage. And it may be no accident that the two go hand in hand, the grand melodic gesture and the bold sweep of a bow across tightly wound fine metal lying across a delicate, many-pieced superstructure, more varnished than substantial wood. In this age, or in any, why do we need heroes? Or, should I more acutely ask, do we need heroes in music? I will answer that question, for the moment unhelpfully, with a question. If not in music, where better to find heroes? Music making is many things, but one of its most important and less discussed elements is the nature of bravery. Music, notionally that most convivial of artistic endeavours, is in fact, for much of the time, a very lonely and introspective pursuit. We are often made aware of the separateness of a writer, a painter, a dancer, but it is as if those pursuits should have a certain acceptable degree of isolation. The writer locked away in his garret, the artist in a studio seeking out the statue hidden within the block of marble, the great prima ballerina spending hours on point and at the bar. But music and its practitioners, they can't be silent. They also cannot be unengaged with what we call the outside world, not least because music is so often a collaborative process and demands a listening audience. Yes, there is much music that can be made by an individual, but much more exists only when at least one other, and sometimes a host, is involved in its execution, its realisation, its being made real. In this way, music as an art form comes closer than any other to a team sport, though perhaps dancers might disagree and let them, for there is yet room for discussion on the point. And where, other than in team sports, do we find heroes for our day-to-day lives? And though many occupations beyond the arenas require us to be measured against the icons of the past, in musical performance, and not just at the highest level, this required measuring must be done publicly, usually on a raised platform, and notionally recorded for posterity, but more often for endless critical closer examination. And questions are asked before and debated upon after, even sometimes during, a performance. Is the performer capable of that she has dared to attempt? Are they able to understand the requests made of them to be part of the continuum, one of the expresses of the composer's melodic invention and spiritual depths? Can they match or better their last public display? Do they measure up to the young performer we heard in this work just the other day on a new recording? Allowances cannot, are not, made for tiredness, a hall's acoustics, a distracted audience, or the fact that any public display is a high-wire act. And for an audience, strange things that we are, the possibility of failure can be as compelling, maybe more so, than any number of safe journeys from one pole to the other. And who would be a violinist when everything depends on the slight mechanics of thin woods and thinner still wires? The heroic can be categorised in several ways, though one must certainly accept that to stand it up with nothing more than a small piece of wood in one's hand before the might of an orchestra may well count as an act of heroism. Couple that with the very high frequencies and narrow margins of notes as they align themselves along the strings, and we have an occupation where there is little room for error and nowhere to hide. Further, this high-wire act has to deal with the most intense demands made upon a solo player when they encounter the masterwork concerti. These compositions are of such length, complexity and intellectual breadth that even now they rise as an equal high peak amongst the most astonishing compositions of Western classical music. They challenged heroic virtuosi then, challenged them now. The concertos by Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Bruch, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Sibelius, Berg, Shostakovich and Gubadolina. These concertos are more than 30 minutes long 
and so often depend entirely on the violinist to proclaim a melodic theme that will be the musical and emotional heart of the work, often intention-filled high notes full of searching frequencies, a responsibility only for the brave. So much for our heroic soloist for the moment. Let's move on to an assertion against which some might argue strongly, that there are no first-ranked composers who have been violin virtuosi. Monteverdi, J.S. Bach, Handel, Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Mendelssohn, the big names in classical music before 1850, could all play a stringing instrument to a passable, and in some cases even more than passable, level. But as the composer and the performer became two separate beings, the professional soloist took centre stage, while the composer often mounted the podium to conduct. And the conductor doesn't feel like a hero to us. A dictator to some, maybe, or a guide, and fancifully maybe a magician. But brave? Heroic? Not to my mind. Composers are more likely today to be conductors than instrumental soloists, though there are some notable exceptions, from the minimalist movement in particular, such as pianists Steve Reich and Philip Glass. Great composer-conductors have been a feature of the last hundred years. A successful case could be made for Felix Mendelssohn as the first composer-conductor in the post-Beethovian world, though Mendelssohn and, much later, Gustav Mahler had their greatest successes conducting others' works rather than their own. Certainly the 20th century has seen many named composers take up the baton with generally happy results. Richard Strauss, Stravinsky, Britten, Bernstein, Ligeti, Boulez, Adams, Adi, and Peter Maxwell Davies. Interestingly, Davies recently complained that the only reason he took up conducting was because most conductors found his works too difficult to direct or preferred safer repertoire. It is remarkable to think that this is almost a direct echo of Beethoven's complaints when players and conductor found the third symphony unmusical, or rather, beyond them. What we can be sure of is that the majority of conductors are, or were, keyboard players. There are exceptions. The Dutch popular violinist André Rieu is such a one. But over the past hundred or so years, violinists have seemed to stick to their instrument and haven't meddled in either the wielding of a baton, the composer's pencil, or Luddite's take note, the laptop. Perhaps this single-mindedness has something to do with the instrument itself. Our violin, much like our violinist, is a delicate creature, disarmingly simple and yet full of complexities and contradictions requiring care and control. A combination of four wire and gut strings and several types of wood, uh, making allied to basic physics, fortunate design and high craftsmanship, a mysterious quasi-alchemical application of varnishes, dyes, drying processes and polishing, all add up to a small, remarkably light confection of an instrument ready to betray or delight both player and audience at the flick of a wrist. In their time, from then to now, there have been minor repairs, major rebuilds and a change in the performing pitch of music. But what has remained unalloyed is the fact that these instruments provide a link to the earliest examples of musical excellence in the Renaissance towns of northern Italy. To a degree, they also inform us of the interchange of goods that made up part of the trade with the Near East, materials that made their way through the northern Italian cities from the major port of Venice and thence to the heart of Europe. Exotic woods, oils and mathematical formulae. The route of musical development travelled the same pathway as common trade, for music was as much a commodity then as it is for us today, and perhaps more so, for then it had fewer competitors. The centre of violin making was initially in the northern Italian city of Brescia, but much of that city's population, including her instrument makers, was devastated by plague in 1576 and then again in 1629, plague being that unexpected and all-pervasive import from the east. With Brescia's fall, its sister city, Cremona, came to the fore in violin construction. 
with those makers' names familiar to us still, including Amati, Guarnieri, and best known of all, Stradivari. The dates of early violin production make the first of these instruments old, many 400, and in some rare cases, over 450 years old. Even the more common pieces from the 1700s, only three centuries old since their first soundings, are, for daily used pieces of active wood, impossibly elderly. Beyond replication, they are eagerly sought for their almost mystical properties of sound and matured beauty. The physical nature of the violin makes it akin to a small child or venerable elder, with all those implied strengths, weaknesses and caprices. To play any instrument, one needs to have a physical interaction with it, no matter how slight. But with the violin, there is something tender and intimate about the way it vibrates against and into the body, like a trembling infant, cradled and supported, needing to be stroked with loving care. While violin construction, particularly Brescian and Cremonan techniques, have long been debated, and still are not fully understood, even after literally forensic examination by modern craftsmen and scientists, what is known is the materials used, spruce for the harmonic top, willow for the internal struts, and maple for the back, strip, and neck, these woods have important natural qualities of density, suppleness, and strength, even before their felling, milling, and seasoning adds further depths to their character. It's worthwhile to note that Europe went through a mini-ice age during the 16th and 17th centuries, and it is thought that this slowed the growth of all trees species, like the normally fast-paced spruce and willow, thereby creating a naturally different tree to those outside of this period, wood that was stronger and could be worked to a finer degree, perfect for an instrument made with gossamer-thin vibrating walls, such as a violin. Further, this wood was treated with several types of minerals, including potassium borate, borax, sodium and potassium silicate, and vernice bianca, or white varnish, made from, in the main, gum arabic, honey and egg white, similar to the varnishes used on paintings by Flemish masters such as Van Eyck from the same period. Add these properties together with master craftsmen and now lost techniques, and it is little wonder that violinists, who I have to say seem a strangely superstitious and obsessive lot backstage, treat these instruments and the makers' names with an acolyte's deep reverence. Maybe, like heroes of old, they need a talisman or powerful implement to help them in their quest. If so, then the hero's choice of instrument is intrinsic to the success of that quest, whether we are talking an ancient saga or an imposing concerto. Access to great instruments, support from the church and a demand from the wealthy merchant class for musical entertainment made northern Italy in the 17th and 18th centuries a dynamic centre of compositional creativity. The time and the place were dominated by composers who exemplified the tripartite nature of the musician, the impresario, Antonio Vivaldi, the teacher, Arcangelo Corelli, and the performer, Giuseppe Tatini. And this is the time when we meet and also say farewell to the great violinist composers, for none followed who matched their skills as violinists and musical creatives. Corelli, Tatini and Vivaldi, to put them in chronological order, were respected violinists, teachers and composers from the north. Tartini was based in Padua and is known to have owned a 1715 Stradivarius. Best known, the red priest Vivaldi hailed from and worked for much of his life in Venice. The elder of the three, Corelli, lived predominantly in Rome, though was originally from the town of Ravenna, south of Venice and east of Bologna. For many, Corelli is the most complete Italian musician within the Western classical tradition, and should rank ahead of better-known composers, including Vivaldi, in terms of his compositional innovation, dissemination of the Italian styles, and as a violinist. Corelli travelled widely, both within the Italian peninsula and into northern Europe, 
influencing several major young composers as he went, including Handel and Scarlatti, and codified the concerto form. Where would we be without him? One can only wonder. It is probably due to the strength of these three Italian composers, and particularly Corelli, that a concerto is even today structured as it is, in three stages, with a tempi linked to each section, fast, then slow, and finally faster. Naturally, things were done differently in Germany and France, but the Italians won out, so that late in the 19th century, Russians were writing three-movement violin concertos without a thought to a varying of the tested reliable formula of 200 years previous. And these three were also the beginners of the heroic violinist. Certainly, there are enough examples of their volatile and rule-breaking natures to mark them as musical controversialists, if not actually heroes. That being said, we do like our heroes to indulge in the confounding of those rules to which we ourselves conform, it makes them a little dangerous, and should they fail, we can easily absolve ourselves from the association. We should note, too, that of our three early heroes of the violin, Corelli amassed a fortune in money and paintings and ended his days living in Cardinal Ottoboni's palace in Rome, Vivaldi died a pauper above Sadler's in Vienna, and Tartini founded a school for violinists, spending the last years of his long life writing essays on violin playing. Little obvious heroism here to see. But the hero in music is important to us. Living vicariously is one of the reasons we go to concerts, watching what we might have done in another life being done admirably by an almost equal, with little risk to the observer. Indeed, the criticisms of virtuoso players, particularly violinists, have never been far from the questioning of their unnatural ability, and usually there is a suspicion of a Faustian pact. One of Tartini's best-known pieces is called The Devil's Trill, no less. Yet, while a diabolical link to music could well be made through Tartini, if we are to find the example of a Mephistophelian contract, we must travel forward a hundred years to encounter the name synonymous with devilish fiddling, Paganini. Niccolò Paganini's fifth violin concerto, written in 1830, sounds like all his orchestral compositions, rudimentary, when placed against acknowledged masters, though the unique complexities of the solo violin line immediately tell us that Paganini was no ordinary talent on his chosen instrument. The difficulties written into each caprice, or sonata, or concerto by Paganini, and there are dozens of examples, are still the measure by which modern players can assess themselves and be assessed. Manual dexterity is stock in trade for all instrumentalists, and, while it is not everything, it certainly counts if you can or cannot conjure the right notes in the right pattern within the given time period along the violin's slick, narrow and brief fingerboard. Clearly Paganini could, and he wrote pieces that for a very long time only he was capable of achieving, and even now, can shred a violinist's reputation as surely as that violinist shreds Paganini's infernally difficult melodic contortions. Between 1815 and 1835, the period that saw Paganini travel Europe as a violin virtuoso, and before he succumbed to illness brought on to a large degree by a wildly indulgent lifestyle, indulgent even by modern standards, I might add, the mercurial nature of his playing brought on a fascination and revulsion in the concert-going public. Denounced from the pulpit and desired from the stalls, his playing lent him a hint of the Hades, not to mention Paganini's lean swarthiness and volatile temper that spoke of the harsh conditions he had under this abysmal pact. By the time of his death in 1840, Paganini had assisted in the development of the soloist, particularly the violin soloist, into something strange and otherworldly, either hero or anti-hero. Subsequent violinists of the middle and late 19th century seemed either to be in his mould or its antithesis, and undoubtedly these personalities, or celebrities as we might call them now, 
had an important impact upon composers and audiences, influencing what was written for them and how they played those pieces to a public now used to seeing the music as well as hearing it. In the subsequent 150 years, and most particularly in the last 50, we have seen many violinists take on the heroic role, where even their surnames are enough to bring to mind their face, their playing, and their natures, just as Paganini's did in the 1820s. 20th century players known by surname alone, Chrysler, Heifetz, Menuhin, Stern, Perlman, Chang, Vengerov, are the inheritors of the tradition stretching back to Tartini, though one wonders if he saw his playing as the beginning of violin heroism or just a way to make ends meet. Perhaps anti-venality is part of the heroic player. All the players mentioned above have been or were involved in good works outside of their role of violin soloist, teachers, philanthropists, United Nations ambassadors, and occasionally champions of lost causes. And perhaps too this is part and parcel of what brings them to be tested out front of an orchestra and before an audience. They are, by their very instinct, people for whom it is not enough to be part of a team, to achieve quietly or collectively. They need to captain, to impart to the group their vision, their ambition for their instrument and music, and the place for both in the wider world. How could they be otherwise? Bravery seems hardwired into such performers, allowing them to take control and confront the challenge of heroism almost daily as an example and inspiration. The musical hero in performance does what she does for all, audience, orchestra, composer, and states by their act of bravery, I dare this, watch, listen, then follow my pathway. I will take you on a marvellous journey. And we trust and willingly follow our musical heroes. <laughs>